I'm often asked by younger Christians, is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? You may assume that my answer is no. And my reason is because the Bible explicitly says so. But you may also be surprised to learn that the New Testament is silent on this issue as it relates to a Christian. Now you may point to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 28, for in the Mosaic law it is explicitly stated that the Israelites were not to get a tattoo, and so it applies to us as Christians as well. The law actually doesn't give a reason for this prohibition for the Israelites, but presumably it's to differentiate themselves from the pagan practices that surrounded them, and they were to be different as they worshipped the living God Yahweh. However, if you claim that Leviticus chapter 19 verse 28 is applicable to a Christian, then you should also not trim your sideburns, and all males should grow out their beards and not groom it as well, as it is stated one verse earlier. Of course, Christians don't practice this today because the totality of the Mosaic law doesn't apply to us, including the prohibition on tattoos. Now, before you all go around out, and get a tattoo expressing your new freedoms in Christ, I would want you to think about some things as the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23. All things are lawful for me, Paul writes, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. In other words, everything is permissible but not everything is good for me or profitable. That means we really need to consider a few things before we get a tattoo. What is our motive for getting one? Is it one of rebellion? Is it to draw attention to ourselves? Is it to fit in? The Bible has principles about not doing things where the motivation is unrighteous or not right. What about getting a tattoo perhaps being a stumbling block to others? Is it the will of God? Does it bring glory to Him? If you're living under the care of your parents, are you obeying your parents with regards to this issue? All of these questions have a biblical principle in the New Testament for Christians that would guide our decision. And of course, there are common sense practical reasons for not getting inked as there is a high risk of infection. It is generally irreversible without extensive medical intervention. And there are a lot of lost opportunities if you get one, such as not being able to give blood here in the Philippines or missing out on a job opportunity. So just to be clear, my advice to someone who would ask me this question would be to not get a tattoo. But I would not cite Leviticus chapter 19 verse 28 but instead give biblical principles that would help guide a believer's decision. Now, why do I mention this? Because I want to show you that Christians often fall into the mistake of misusing the Old Testament law to defend the practice, and in a way would be guilty of something that the Judaizers were advocating, which led Paul to write the book of Galatians. The Judaizers, as you know, were teaching the Christians of the first century that they needed to follow the Mosaic laws, and they needed to follow Jewish customs like circumcision in order to be saved or in order to be continued to be saved. This is, of course, false teaching, as we have discussed in our previous sermons in our study of Galatians. So what then is the purpose 
of God giving the Mosaic law to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And in our context today, what is the purpose of rules and spiritual commands of Jesus for the Christian? Let's unpack these issues as we take a look at rules, 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 and continue our study in the book of Galatians. We begin in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19, and we will continue all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. Look at me at verses 19 and 20. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Here in these verses, Paul asks the question, what then is the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the law? He was referring specifically to the Mosaic law that the Judaizers were advocating that Christians still needed to follow to be saved. Here he stated that one of the purpose for why God gave the law to the people of Israel was to identify sin and in doing so to keep sin in check. You see, after the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years and then led out of exile by Moses, they didn't know what a relationship with the living God, Yahweh, looked like. So Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law of which the Ten Commandments were a part. And this law was the expectation of how God wanted the people of Israel to interact with Him. Through these laws, God wanted to teach them about obedience, what it meant to obey the living God. These set of rules would serve to identify that sinning was not in line with God's desires and would bring about His discipline and punishment. The law would show that there was a right way and a wrong way as it related to interacting with God and that there was a difference between how they were to live and how the pagans that surrounded them lived. You see, the word translated sin in both Hebrew and Greek carries the idea of missing the mark, failure to fulfill a goal. And that goal or standard that God has set is pure righteousness and holiness. And sadly, mankind has missed that standard of righteousness and failed to reach that goal of holiness. Therefore, the law's purpose, number one, is to identify sin. It identifies sin. It was given to identify the markers of what actions would cause us to miss the mark of perfection God intended for us to live. For the people of Israel, these more than 600 laws found in the book of Leviticus are to show the people of Israel what is sin for them and how God wanted them to obey. Likewise, today for us as Christians, the commands given in the New Testament are rules we are to follow to identify what is sin and what is not. You see, the law in the Old Testament and the commands in the New Testament have nothing to do with salvation or justification. It was simply used to identify sin. That's why the law for the Jews and commands and rules for the followers of Christ in the New Testament for us are important because it provides a vehicle to identify sin. Take, for example, if I was a teacher and I told my students, now I want you to be good boys and good girls. And if you are good, you will get a reward from me. But if I don't explain to them what I meant by being a good boy or a good girl, 
then it is open to interpretation on their behalf. So let's say, for example, Johnny hits Susie because Susie sticks her tongue out at him. Is it okay? Is it justified? If there are no rules, then we can say, well, Johnny was a good boy because he only hits people when they annoy him. That sounds ridiculous, I know, because generally the act of hitting someone to hurt them is wrong regardless of the cause. But apart from some rule that defines that hitting is wrong, what Johnny does could be construed as being good and therefore deserving a reward because he was provocated. An experienced teacher would have done away with the good and bad designation and given a list of things that garner a reward, such as keeping your hands to yourself or listening to instruction and not talking when someone else is instead of generally saying, be a good boy or a good girl. My friends, the law does not save, but it helps to identify what is right and what is wrong. And that is why each country has its own list of rules known as laws, which identify what their citizens can do and cannot do. Paul notes in the second part of verse 19 that the Mosaic law was temporary until the seed, the Savior Jesus, came And then it was no longer needed. And that's why we, living in the church age after Christ has come, are no longer bound to any part of the Mosaic law. In fact, Paul mentions in the last part of verses 19 and then 20 that the law was inferior because it passed through the hands of angels and then Moses to get to the people. Versus when the Lord gave the revelation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior, it went directly to mankind. Look at me now at verses 21 to 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here in verses 21 to 22, Paul poses a question. Is there a conflict between the law and the promises of God? And the answer is absolutely not. And the reason is because both serve a different purpose. The law was never intended to provide salvation. That's why obedience to the law through good works was never intended to save. Even if it was hypothetically possible that the law brought about salvation... Paul proposes in verse 21, in fact, that no one can live out the law perfectly, which meant that it was not its purpose since it cannot be done. Take, for example, trying to drink soup with chopsticks. Now, you may get a few droplets of soup on the chopstick, but you would be severely frustrated in the process because the purpose of a chopstick is not to drink soup. A soup spoon serves that purpose. Similarly, good works for salvation doesn't work because the purpose of obedience of the law through good works is not that purpose. It has other purposes. In verse 22, Paul illustrates the second purpose of the law, which is to show, number two, the need for a Savior. Shows the need for a Savior. You see, the Bible says we are all confined under sin 
meaning the law declares that all of us are guilty of sin. That's what Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all lawbreakers, even if we've just broken one law. And because all have sinned, then all need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. That means salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. Take, for example, if you drive a car. How many times have you gone over the speed limit in the span of 10 years? How many times in those 10 years have you illegally used your cell phone while driving? I'm sure if you add up all those times that you went above the speed limit or used your phone illegally, it would number more than 5,000 times in a span of 10 years. But during those 10 years, let's say you've never been caught by the police. But what if I were to say to you, surprise, I installed a secret device that tracked how many times you went over the speed limit or when you picked up your phone to use it while driving. And now I have turned it over to the authorities for prosecution. And over those 10 years, all of those violations come up to the punishment of life imprisonment because that's 5,000 plus counts of reckless endangerment of someone else's life. How would you plead? You and I, of course, would have to plead guilty because we have now been rightfully and finally caught and we have to pay the price. Well, you may ask the judge to be merciful or you're going to ask or look for someone in a higher authority position with jurisdiction over this matter to see if they would extend grace and mercy to you. You see, bottom line, you would look for someone who would rescue you, who would save you. That, my friends, is how the law shows you and I need a Savior. Because breaking just one law condemns you to a life in hell. That's what Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us. For the wages of sin is death. Wages means that which we deserve. So all of us deserve death. Therefore, all of us desire or should desire to be saved. And therefore, we need to look for a Savior. Let me tell you that when you are in death's inevitable clutches, the only thing you and I will be thinking about is getting saved. If you are in quicksand and you are sinking, are you thinking about what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow? If you fall into an abandoned well and break your ankle, are you thinking as you're lying at the bottom of the well how to pay for your Netflix subscription or your credit card bill? If you are being attacked by a shark in the ocean, are you thinking about working overtime at work? If your boat that you are in is hit by a giant wave and it's sinking, are you now thinking about getting your hands on the soon-to-arrive PS5? Of course not. In all of those cases, you and I would be thinking of only one thing, and that is, who will save me? So it is in life, realizing that committing just one sin for the many in God's law book destines you for hell, according to the Bible, you and I better be thinking about a Savior. And if we place our trust in Jesus, you and I should really worship God and thank Him for being our Savior. Look at me in verse 23. 
But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. When Paul writes that before faith came, what does that mean? He meant faith in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, as we've mentioned, salvation was through faith in God. When we talked about this last week. And faith was evidenced in various actions, such as in the building of the ark by Noah, or leaving Ur of the Chaldees and moving his family to a new land in Canaan, like Abraham, or obedience to the law for the Israelites. The Israelites' faith in God was demonstrated through their obedience in the law. But notice that Paul says that the law protected them until the Savior came. It did not save them. But since the Messiah Jesus Christ had not yet come or had been revealed in the Old Testament, they didn't need to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved because he had not yet appeared. Faith in God saved them, and the Bible says it was credited to them as righteousness. But of course, it is the blood of Christ applied to their sin that saved the people in the Old Testament as only Jesus Christ could die for all sins, those in the past, the present, and the future. Paul then writes that they were kept under guard, that before Christ came, the law served to protect the Israelites from being influenced by the evils of the pagan cultures that surrounded them. You see, without the law, the Israelites would have become more easily influenced by the pagans and perhaps even adopt their evil practices. That's why the Mosaic law had some unique dietary laws, unique civil laws that set them apart from the pagans that lived around them and among them. For example, if I were to set a rule for my children that they cannot date until they finish their college studies and are older than 22, and they could only date when they began to support themselves, you would call me crazy. Really, in the 21st century, Pastor, you would set up these rules for your kids? I think they're actually pretty logical. Because if you're going to date someone with the intention of finding a spouse, can you imagine asking your parents for allowance money to take your girlfriend out? But dating in courtship is a different sermon for a different time. But if you want to hear what I've preached on about this topic, you can listen to our series on the Song of Solomon, which you will find in our church's website. Now, for the record, my eldest child is only 14, and Cindy and I haven't really sat down uh, and set actual guidelines for dating. So don't take this hypothetical rule as the rule in the pastor's house and make it your own and say to your child, well, that's the pastor's rule, so it will be our family's rule as well. But this is only a hypothetical rule. It is a rule that I set, not because I believe I can really enforce it, but it is to protect the child that I love from being distracted in their studies or from making decisions that may adversely change the course and trajectory of their lives if they make foolish decisions without years of maturity behind them. The purpose is to protect them until such time they can maturely make a wise decision or someone mature comes along who they can get to know instead of just playing around in their relationship. Look at verses 24 to 25 where Paul continues this thought. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Here Paul says that the law served as a tutor to bring us to Christ. The Greek word for tutor is pedagogue. It's not like what you would think of when you think of your tutor in school. Someone who comes alongside of you to help you in a school subject you are struggling with. The cultural context at that time as it relates to a tutor is that of a young child who would be placed under the care and protection of a tutor when they were between the ages of six and seven all the way until puberty. And this tutor was to be a very strict disciplinarian to guard and to protect that young child from the evils of the Roman society and to provide for them a moral grounding. You see, the law's function, number three, is to protect from more sin. The law protects us from more sin. That protection and the vehicle for that protection may seem harsh, may seem too strict, but it was needed until such time one could maturely think for themselves and make the right decision. So also the law served as a guide. It may be restrictive, but it was for their own good. Some of you may have gone to a private Christian school, and you felt that the rules of the school were too restrictive. Now, as a general rule of thumb, you will find that most all schools around the world have very strict rules. Why? Because they know that their purpose is to educate And to educate properly, there must be order and discipline, especially in a Christian school where the rules are even more strict than in a public school. Why? Because there is a desire to instill also a biblical worldview and Christian morals in the young child's heart and mind. Now, I know that the debate is always there. Do you shelter the children from the world or do you expose them to the world? The question is a tough one because there is a balance. But I would say that the younger the children are, the more sheltered they should be. The older they get, the more exposure they should have, but still under the tutor, the pedagogue, someone who will ensure discipline. Now, that being said, listen to me carefully. The rules of a Christian school do not have anything to do with salvation. And do not have anything to do with your welcome into the church community. The rules of a school is for order and to protect the child within the confines of the school environment. But it does not extend into the church, which serves a different purpose. It is important that educational institutions have rules. In fact, any organization or company should have rules and policies. But the rules for each of these settings is unique in alignment to the purpose of that organization. So yes, I believe that schools should have rules about things like tattoos and personal grooming, skirt length, shirts tucked in, conduct, rules for respect, and other things I know that students feel highly restrictive. Because the purpose of the school is to educate the heart and the mind. But the school should explain the purpose of these rules and that the school rules are for the school and not necessarily applicable always in the Christian life. I remember a few years ago, someone in their late 20s messaged me and asked me if they could attend our church. I said, absolutely. 
it's open for all people. I said, why do I sense there is some hesitation in your coming? He said, well, pastor, I attended Grace Christian High School. And I know the rules were that boys cannot have earrings. But since graduation from college, I got earrings. And I didn't know if my wife and I, including my children, would be welcomed at church. I said, you are very welcome, and proceeded to explain to him that school rules are to maintain discipline and order, a standardized level of grooming and appearance that would be appropriate. However, after they graduate, they can make whatever decisions they want, but as adults, they were now responsible for the consequences of their actions because that protection is no longer there. I mention this because a lot of people are still hung up about rules that they were under, especially when they attended school, specifically a Christian school. But in fact, this hang-up extends even into rules in the church or rules that a Christian family has set or rules in a Christian-run business. For example, they are angry, like my children, about bedtime rules in the home. Or perhaps if the church sets up policies as it relates to serving in the church, they have hang-ups about that. There shouldn't be rules in the church, they say. Or perhaps in the office about the fact that you have to clock in. Don't they trust us? Why do we have to do these things? Of course, as I've mentioned, these rules are to maintain order and discipline and even to protect in most instances. But they have nothing to do with your salvation. Following them doesn't get you saved. Please read your Bible so that you know what commands and rules you are to follow as Christians so that you don't get caught up by modern-day Judaizers who tell you what you have to do or don't do. So, for example, as a Christian today, do you have to give 10% as a tithe? The answer is no. That was a percentage set for those living under the law which we are no longer under. We can give God more or give God less. The Bible says that our standard, according to the New Testament, is to give cheerfully and willingly in this age of grace. So if you give 7% and that makes you happy, then give 7%. God will be fine with your offering. If it's 8%, it's also fine. If it's 10%, wonderful, 12%, there is no set number. And that's the freedom we have in Jesus. It's a matter of attitude. As a Christian today, let me ask you, are you under the Ten Commandments? The answer is no. Now, you may be surprised with me saying that, but remember the Ten Commandments were part of the larger Mosaic Law. And the book of Galatians tells us that we are not under any part of it. Now, before you freak out, Jesus repeats nine out of the Ten Commandments in the Gospels. And so we as his followers are to observe those nine out of ten. The one that is not repeated is not working on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So that's why we can work on Saturday or Sunday. But the principle of Sabbath rest, where we take out time to rest and to worship God, is still important. But instead of being bound by law to a day of the week where we cannot work and we must worship, We have the freedom to worship the Lord any day of the week. And I know some of you are worshiping corporately on a Friday, on a Saturday, on a Sunday. And because of this pandemic and with 
virtual worship, even on a Monday or a Tuesday. And it is okay. And the Lord accepts our worship. It doesn't have to be on a Saturday or a Sunday. But the law is important because the Bible tells us it protects us and guides us. As Paul writes, verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, a pedagogue. When Christ came, it became clear that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. To bring us to Christ doesn't mean we have to obey the law in good works to be saved. It just means that the purpose and the function of the law was to protect us, to guard us, to keep us in check until such time Christ came and we are released to pursue Christ. For us as Christians who live after the cross of Christ, that means we do not have to return back to the bondage of the law. That's why the Judaizers were propagating a false gospel. We don't need to go back under the bondage of the law to protect us since we have been released into the care of Christ. As a Christian today, the commands in the New Testament serve in a similar role as the Old Testament laws for the Jewish people. Both do not deal with salvation, but God has given us commandments to follow so that we will be protected and kept safe. Just like a parent says, you are a young adult now. I can't control you like when you were a little child. But here are some guidelines that I think you should follow so that you will be protected. So also Christ gives us commands in the New Testament to serve as guardrails and guidelines for our best because he loves us. Look at verses 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Having given his theological argument points, Paul now shifts to focusing on addressing the Galatians directly talking about the limitations of the law, the limitations of the law, and there are many. He talks about them leaving the pedagogue, the tutorship of the law, to now having the position of one who has been justified by grace alone in Christ alone. And this new position is as sons of God through faith in Jesus. But how can we be God's children? Well, we are spiritually adopted, the Bible says, by the Lord. And so that no one can question our sonship in Christ, we were baptized into Christ, as Paul writes. This baptism of the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, serves to identify that we belong to the Lord. In fact, Paul writes, we have put on Christ. And the idea is that as a child was adopted in the Roman context, they put on their new family's toga. So also, in Christ, to identify us as His, we put on Christ in that sense. Our identification is no longer the person that we were under the law, but now we belong to Him. That's why when you are adopted, you take the name of your new family. Paul's point is, why would anyone go back to the law 
when they have this special standing with the Lord. The law could not adopt us. Therefore, it is limited. The limits of the law. Paul then writes that Christians are all one in Christ in verse 28. There is no one more superior than the other. Everyone has the same spiritual standing in relation to salvation. And that's why we are all marked as saved. In the eyes of God, all Christians are equal, saved by His grace through His Son. Therefore, it doesn't matter your ethnic race, your earthly position or profession, or your gender. Everyone is one in Christ. And while the Bible speaks about different roles for different genders and unique areas for service based on spiritual gifting, nevertheless, the Bible teaches full equality for all because of Jesus. This is another of the law's limitations. There is no equality in the law. So why return to putting yourself under the law where naturally there is only comparison and ranking in the law? If the law was a basis for our salvation, and if it was the basis for us to maintain salvation, then every one of us as Christians would be comparing all the time to see if we were more saved than the other, or rank, which is the higher Christian, if there was such a ranking based on how well we follow the law. That's what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. They competed with one another to see who could best fulfill all the laws. It became a competition. The law cannot provide equality, and therefore it is limited. And then in verse 29, Paul speaks of receiving the spiritual blessings of Abraham through Christ. This doesn't mean we receive the promises given specifically to Israel, as we are to make a clear distinction that the church is not spiritual Israel. But through Abraham's seed, Jesus the Messiah, we are heirs. And as heirs, we receive an inheritance. What inheritance can the law provide? Nothing. So let me ask you a question. Do you get anything for obeying all the traffic laws? Of course not. Your reward, if you can call it that, is not getting a ticket. You don't get a free buffet if you follow all traffic laws for a year. You see, the limitations of the law is that you only get punished if you break the law. But you don't get rewarded generally if you follow the rules. And yet in Christ, the Bible tells us, you receive an inheritance as heirs. And that's why there are limitations to the law. Now Paul further explains in chapter 4, in verses 1 to 7, an illustration of the restrictions placed upon all those living under the law. Let's take a quick look. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Paul says that those living under the law or shackling themselves to obedience of the law through good works as a means of salvation and maintaining salvation were like children with restrictions. As a child is restricted, they cannot make decisions independently. They don't have much freedom. They cannot fully enjoy life. So also is one who places themselves under the law, under the bondage of seemingly having to follow certain rules so that 
supposedly God would be pleased or that you'll be more saved. And that's why children complain all the time that they don't have any say or any rights, which realistically they don't. Like my children, wanting more rights, we as parents limit them. I know that they will inherit everything of mine one day, but I don't give them everything because they are still young. In fact, the computer and the gadgets that they use, we always tell them we own them. And so we have the right to put limits. I know that one day those gadgets will be theirs, but temporarily as they are under our guardianship, they are restricted. But when they come into maturity, Cindy and I will declare that you are now adults and the restrictions can be taken off. That's the idea. If you put yourself under the law, you are like a child. You yourself put restrictions upon the freedoms that you can have. Look at verse 3 to 5. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Continuing this illustration, Paul states that our standing has changed from that of a restricted child under the law to now one who has full rights as an adult son. You see, in God's perfect timing, during the period known as the Pax Romana, He chose for His only Son, Jesus, to come to earth to be the perfect and only sufficient sacrifice for mankind. Jesus was perfect and unique because Jesus was the God-man sacrifice. Jesus was the only one to fulfill perfectly the demands of the law, as Paul writes in verse 4. And so the sinless sacrifice, Jesus, was able to save mankind. And through His death on the cross, Jesus redeemed us out from under the law, under its bondage, to be adopted as sons, receiving full rights. And with this adoption comes the privilege and enjoyment of a son who is free to choose to do what is right. And that's wonderful because the illustration is when we become adults, we are all responsible for our own decision. And so, yes, we have the freedom to do everything and anything we want, including, and most importantly, the freedom to do what is honoring and pleasing to God, no longer under restriction, but choosing to follow God. Look at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And of a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Because we are His children, God sent the Holy Spirit to reside inside every one of us to confirm us as belonging to Him as His child. And that's why we can appropriately call Him Abba Father, which is a term of great intimacy. It is also a term of legal standing. It's the same as if a child calls their father Daddy. But if given such a special relationship, no longer a slave, but as son and heir, then why do you go back to putting yourself under the law? You see, in Christ, the wonderful thing is that we have the freedom to live as children of God. The freedom to live as children of God. Now, I want to mention that I'm not advocating for something called antinomianism. 
as we focus on grace over the law, I may be accused of being against the law, antinomianism, anti meaning against, nomos meaning law. And this idea theologically is the belief that Christians today don't need to follow any of God's laws or commands. It takes a biblical truth to an unbiblical, illogical conclusion. We've noted over and over again that Christians are not required to follow the Jewish customs and laws to be justified or saved. But that doesn't mean in our sanctification, in our discipleship journey to be more Christ-like, that we do not obey the commands of the Lord in the New Testament. Paul deals with the issue of antinomianism in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The doctrine of salvation by grace alone in Christ alone is not a license to sin more. And it's not giving us the freedom to sin more. We'll talk about this more in chapter 5 when we get there. We are not under the Mosaic Law with its extensive list of legal codes. We are under the law of Christ, which is centered on love. That's what Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 39 tells us. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ doesn't earn salvation or maintain salvation, but it is expected of every follower of Jesus Christ who has placed their trust in Him. And so we don't have to worry about a bunch of rules. We just worry about two. And it is based on love. We live out our lives loving God and loving others. And in doing so, we please the Lord. The wonderful thing today, my friends, is that you and I are not under the shackles of the law, but you and I have the freedom to live as children of God. It is something that is life-transforming when you and I can understand that we are now free to live righteously and not to be bound by sin. May God continue to encourage you and open up your minds to understand these deep theological truths that will serve as the foundation of your walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us that the law does have its purpose, but that the purpose of the law is not to save. Help us in the freedom that we have as children of God to live in such a way that we choose to follow you, that we joyfully do what is right, that we are reminded that we could still be under the shackles of 20,000 rules. But instead, on the basis of your Son, you just challenge us to live in love, to love you and to love others. May that be what we do as we live forth a life holy and pleasing to you as followers of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.